Residential property can be a great vehicle for investment. If you start young enough and you know how to choose a good asset, the combined power of compounding and leverage will work wonders for you. But its weakness is that it provides poor cash flow and investors need to be very patient while they work in their day job to fund their investment portfolio. There's also a weakness in how we measure success. Now that's if you stick to the traditional model, of course. But what is it that sophisticated investors do? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxdale's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Today we're delving into a different style of property investing, not your typical residential, commercial or development models, but alternative investment. Now, sounds a bit risky, I know, but I've been reading up on this and I'm curious to learn more. So I've invited Selena Kulkarni to join me today and explain what is meant by alternative investment. By way of background, Selena has been a chartered accountant for 25 years, a certified property investment advisor and a wealth strategist. And after years of learning, testing and becoming an investor herself, Selena says that she has uncovered strategies that can be used to drive up investment cash flow by choosing investments that outperform the market and offer measurable return on investment. Now, if you're like me, you might be feeling a tinge of skepticism, but it sounds compelling. So let's see what this is all about. And thank you so much for joining me today, Selena. Oh, Veronica, it's great to be here. That was a fantastic open. <laughs> so you're not scared by the open? Some people are like, oh not my God. <laughs> No, it's great. Great frame up. So tell me, if you can give us some some context here, I'm curious to know, first of all, what is alternative investing? Yeah, so alternative investments is probably a, a term that a few people have coined, but um, it usually just describes investments that sit outside of mainstream. So they're not weird and they're not risky. Um, that That's the first thing that conjures up, but um, it just means that um, they, they work in very inefficient markets and so they're not widely understood, they're not widely known and so that's why the returns are so amazing It's because there's just fewer people playing in those areas with those strategies. You used a word there which I thought or term there that I think oh, I just want to pick up on and that is inefficient sure. markets. Yes. So can you explain or elaborate on that I guess because it seems and perhaps I'm got it wrong I think maybe the traditional method of property investing is quite efficient in the sense that there's a lot of players and so everyone the set rules and everyone just sort of plays to those rules is that sort of what you mean by that uh no look I mean I think the way that I I sort of I frame it up is that if you think about uh, property investing as we understand it and how it's evolved over say the last 30 years it was almost true 30 years ago that if you threw a dart at the map of Australia and bought some property there, you probably did okay. And part of the reason for that was there's, there weren't that many people even thinking about buying investment property. And I think about the opportunities that my parents had and, and my husband's parents had. They, they had the opportunity to buy up big time and they just it just didn't occur to them. And so because of that market inefficiency back then, it wasn't hard to find the gems and, you know, stack the odds in your favour. Whereas what I know to be 100% true is um, Australians love real estate. Like it's a national pastime. And what that means is that um, a little bit of knowledge makes you dangerous. And, you know, there's a lot of interest in building wealth through property. And, you know, if I think even about the 20 plus years that I've been, you know, investing even when I started, it was still sort of a, a concept on the fringe. A few people were getting interested in it, whereas now um, pretty much everyone you speak to has an opinion on it, um, you know, wants to be in it, recognises that it is the vehicle to lever yourself out of whatever situation you're in. And so the market has become 
very efficient. And what that means is it's you have to work harder or align with someone like you to find the better opportunities. Otherwise, you're just competing with the masses and people are stepping over each other to find the good deals or paying silly amounts to try and get their foot in the door or buying the wrong properties because the market is so frothy. Mm. People can't, they, they just, and there's too much information. It makes it, you know, harder to get the sort of gains that we've been able to achieve in the past. So I guess the paradox is that the more efficient the market is, the more inefficient it is for the individual participants. Absolutely. And I think the extension of an efficient market is returns get compressed. I mean, obviously, from a capital gains perspective, anyone who held property in the last two years is laughing all the way to the bank right now. Um, But, you know, typically, our market, you've really got to work hard to find the gems. It's not you know, it's not like throwing that dart as it was 20 years ago and, you know, odds were you'd probably do okay. Now it's much harder. Well, it's funny that though, because what you talk about, in fact, you've got a podcast too. What is it called? Uh, The Alternative Investor. There you go. It's easy. (laughs) (laughs) So if anyone's interested in this, listen to that. And, And I was literally listening to your most recent episode, which is talking about the idea or the, the, um, the element of luck in, yes. in investment outcomes and the willingness or unwillingness, depending on how you come at it, to to recognise the element of luck. And I think if you talk about the last two years in most uh, sort of classes of property and most locations in this country, you've done well, but there's degrees of well, some is, is well or very well. And, you know, and uh, how much are we thinking that we're good because we did it or got into that market or whatever versus, oh, dear, did we buy a good asset? Did we actually do better than average? Did we do worse than average? Could we have done better if we bought 10 years or whatever? But it masks a lot of poor performance as well. When everything's rising, you don't know what what the underperformers are, do you? 100%. I I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, um, you know, I had a couple of people say to me over the last just even few weeks, I've been a very clever investor this last 12 months and they're new to investing <laughs> and I must have the Midas touch. I have an ability to choose assets well and, you know, you never want to be unkind. You always want to be encouraging. But the thought is, well, let's see you do that over a couple of decades or, you know, maybe even longer, three or four decades, and then you can start to, you know, say hand on heart that you've got great skills as an investor. I think it's very hard in just a 12-month block to, to make those sort of claims. And yet, in the buyer's agency space, we've actually got entrants into the market that make these enormous claims after, and I'm shocked, at, at, at as little as 12 months in the market saying, aren't I a good buyer's agent? All of my clients have benefited. And I'm like, everyone's benefited. Like, what does it make you special? And, and how have you... Anyway, we digress. So why do you think... Um, I mean, look, I was going to ask you why do you think most people um, enter property investing, but I think you've already answered that. Can you give us some examples of alternative investments? And then what I'm quite keen to understand is what type of investor and at what point in their investment journey would they look at these types of investments? Yeah, so um, what are, one of the things, like I, I'm a property girl, you know, through and through, and so one of the things I loved about alternative um, property investments as I see them is that they're still backed by real property. The interesting thing about the, you know, the way that other markets, even markets outside of Australia operate, is that if you tap into the right strategies inside of the right networks, what you can do is you can structure property deals so that people like you and me can participate without having to handle, you know, be involved in the day-to-day niggly management of tenants and toilets and all that good stuff. But also because of that market inefficiency you've got that ability to create you know i call it alpha which is way above average returns so things like um and and these strategies exist in our market it's just that they're harder to find and um often you know people want you to put large sums of money in but they're things like property syndications small private funds um lending deals joint ventures, and then traditional property. So I kind of always try and talk about the five buckets of strategies. And then within each of those, there's lots of permutations. But the the challenge we have in our market is there's only one way to transact property. Like if I'm selling, it's got to, 
you want to engage a conveyancer and transfer the title. Whereas in a lot of other markets, there's many permutations of how to not only own assets, but transfer ownership. And so what that creates is a very, if you like, creative and entrepreneurial way of structuring deals. And when you can do that, and in markets where the metrics are very different, meaning you know, you're buying assets that are already cash flowing strongly, and then you're making tweaks to those those investments or those properties to you know even improve that cash flow or improve value. So it means you're not relying on a rising market. It's very uh, immune to volatility. It doesn't matter whether the market goes up, down, or sideways. You still get that cash flow. So it's not necessarily that I would advocate that anyone put all of their money into those sorts of strategies. But what I learned on my own journey is by you know it's almost like a minimum effective capital that you've got to be thinking about. If I put 20% of my net worth into those sorts of deals, I can 5x my income. And so that's the sort of thinking. And, and in terms of, I think you were asking when is the right time, I, th- I think there's no question in my mind you have to, if you want to you know, create wealth and financial freedom um, well before retirement age, you've got to, you've got to build capital. That's, you've got mm. to start there. And working in traditional property in Australian market is 100% where you should be. So if you're starting out working with someone like you or or working with a buyer's agent or someone who's really educated who can help you stack the odds in your favour so you don't accidentally go out and buy a lemon because property is expensive and the last thing you want to do is it's not that you can't reverse those decisions but you know time is the the best friend you Mm. have as an investor and you it's expensive to get in it's expensive to get out so you just don't want to make mistakes but that first part of the wealth journey is build capital use leverage buy high value assets that are likely to go up over time but once you get to the point where you have a portfolio of property and you know i I, you know there's lots of examples i could give but let's say you've got um you know a few million bucks in property and now you're like well this isn't doing anything for me because there's not much cash flow and and you don't necessarily want to eat the cow meaning you don't want to sell your assets to fund your lifestyle that's where alternative can be really great because you could take a tiny percentage of your equity, put it into alternative, and then just, you know, it's game over very quickly. Um, and so that's the place for it. It's it's when you get to that point where you've got some capital to play with. It's interesting. Just I'm thinking while you're saying that is that quite a lot of um, people who subscribe to the idea of property investment and and want to sort of build portfolios, they do approach it by saying, right, I've got to buy the first one and as soon as I've got enough equity, I've got to go and borrow against that to buy the next one and so on. And certainly before bank, you know, the Banking Royal Commission um, trimmed down the, the ready access to cash, that was something that allowed people to quite unhindered by all sorts and quite often a whole portfolio for the garbage as well and it's a numbers game then that they thought you know it's about volume rather or quantity rather than quality and so I guess what you're saying here is that instead of looking at that where you run the risk of just as soon as I've got just enough equity and you know and and I'm impinged by my income anyway because that 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 obviously uh puts a constraint on my borrowing capacity then I've got just enough to go and buy something. And I see this on forums all the time. It's like, I've got $400,000, you know, where can I buy an investment in this country? And it's like the focus is very much on buying something rather than buying something good or buying a good asset or buying actually an investment. So I guess what you're saying is that if you took a 20%, say you took your equity and you actually invested it in an alternative investment opportunity that you know, that takes, that de-risks that borrowing or that extra money to buy a crap asset. But the problem is that you're talking about high yield and typically that's correlated with high risk, right? So so how do you sort of say, well, you know, or is this for investors that are sort of earmarked a certain amount of money they're quite happy to lose, you know, if it, if it all goes wrong? I mean, how do, how do those two things sit well with each other? Look, uh, I think this is a, a really interesting space. I, I had a conversation with someone in the last week who um, you know is with a financial planner who advocates that higher risk and higher reward are correlated, and I can tell you after having been in this space for a long time, they absolutely do not. I can tell you from my perspective, and and I'm talking general generalities now. Like if you if you go out and you buy a property, a traditional property as we understand it, 
what you are banking on is a rising market. Mm. You're not necessarily going to get great cash flow. In fact, probably the majority of Australian properties are going to take a little bit of money out of your pocket to, to support it. So you're not, you're not banking on that cash. You are banking on a rising market. So mm. if there is volatility, if there is uncertainty, if you buy in the wrong place, if you make a poor judgment call, if you get crap tenants, like there's all sorts of variables that can make that strategy a bit wobbly and, you know, people like you and me who've had great success as investors, um, you know, it's taken time, like cuts and bruises to get to the point where we can confidently make those decisions. When I look at alternative strategies, number one, the num the dollars per deal are small. So your capacity to diversify both geographically from a liquidity point of view, from a strategy point of view, from a um, from an advisor point of view is enormous. Like you just, it's totally different. Like and I'll give you the contrast. You, you know, a million dollars will buy you. I'm not sure what in um, the Sydney in Sydney anymore. Maybe a not much. Two bedroom unit. Yeah, not much. Some, um, in you could you could buy places. one asset. Yeah, one <laughs> asset for a million bucks, or maybe do 15 deals in the alternative space. And so, uh, you know, I'm sort of giving you the the contrast. And, and really, what I'm there's no right or wrong with any of this stuff. The biggest mistake I see people making is almost what you described before, where people get told, "Oh, you can refinance and go out and borrow to purchase another property." And they let it burn a hole in their pocket. Mm. And I was very guilty of this very early on in my career. I just, as soon as I had that that little bit of breathing space, I'd go out and I'd do it again. And I understand, especially like I was a fairly low income earner, you know, when I started investing. And, you know, I saw that property was the pathway to the next level, but I didn't have a plan. And I think where I see people making mistakes is they're not, they're not buying whether it's alternative or traditional property, it's got to be in the context of a plan. So it could be that you go, well, you've got a reasonably good income and so maybe you work out that the banks are really going to let you buy somewhere between two and five properties and then they're going to say enough, you can't, you can't do it anymore. So maybe you go through the motions of putting that capital base in place and then you start looking at alternative at that point. But I feel like, um, yeah, there's definitely, um, in the context of a plan, that makes so much more sense to me than just as soon as you've built a little bit of equity, going to the bank and saying, what next? Unless you're in that situation where you have to do that. So if you're someone who doesn't earn a great income, you know, maybe you do have to be a little more aggressive in your stance, but um, it's not what I would expect, I would say the average investor needs to do. It's interesting you say that about the sort of someone who maybe have a lesser earning capacity or income um, because one of the, you know, perhaps unexpected side effects of responsible lending is that the opportunity for successful property investment, uh, and I mean being able to buy a quality asset, is now something for those who already have a good income. And, you know, I, I did a workshop uh, for Home Buyer Academy um only last week, which is the Where to Buy for Investors workshop. And that's a, we did that using data from, uh, I had Kent Lardner, who's our sort of our data geek on on this podcast, he came along and explained a whole bunch of stuff. And he, he was talking about a report that he's recently done, you know, looking for where, where the opportunities were to for, with a $500,000 budget in the country. And it was, he was, he said, I, I started, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically he didn't start really thinking there was going to be almost nowhere, but then it was pretty clear that it was almost nowhere as a good, as, as a good solid place to invest, right? Um, so I guess the question for you is, does alternative investing offer anything for those who mistakenly think that the volume of properties they own will actually be their path to fortune? Yeah, look, I, I, there's so much gold. I reckon we should have another chat about this um, as another podcast, but <laughs> the... Um, the, re the reality is exactly what you said, like it, it's getting tougher. M the prices are exorbitant and it's getting tougher to break into the property market, no question. But what I also believe is, and I, I, I had a client, a young girl who was for getting into the workforce, reasonably good income, but, you know, starting from scratch and it's, it's a tough gig for young people. And basically where we got to in terms of, you know, the sort of options I gave her is I said you could go out 
and scrape into a regional property, a unit or something like that. Or you can just wait, give yourself another 18 months, get a healthier deposit behind you and go out and buy in what in my mind a quality property still still in a regional area but in a high growth regional area and she did exactly that and she's followed it to the t and now she's in a situation where she's had fantastic results over the last two three years and you know and i and refugee i've seen refugees come to australia who start from zero and they go out and they get themselves three jobs Mm. And they work like a dog for two years and they get their foot in the door on a property in an area they feel comfortable with and then they just keep working at it. So I I think income is not a limit. I've witnessed that income is not a limiting factor. Youth is not a limiting factor. It's it's really about aligning with people who will help you make good decisions. So you're quite right. It is really hard to find anything under 500,000 now. But even if you're starting from ground zero, if you just do the hard yards and, you know, in, investing is one of those games, I feel, and it is a game. There's no right or wrong and it's it's never wrong to spend money on your lifestyle. Mm. But I just think if, if people invested a little more energy into stewardship, <laughs> meaning the care of the money that they do earn, I think it would just put them on another playing field. I don't know if that answered that question or not. <laughs> It's more, it's a, I guess it's a little bit philosophical, isn't it, around it is. the structural inequities that, are, that is, is really building in this country, I think. That, yeah. um, it is rough. And, and there is a mindset and an approach that will make, I guess, will encourage one person to really just pull up their socks and say, that's it, we're going to just go for it. And others that say, bugger, it's too hard, I'm just going to go and spend my money and have a great life. Now, for the short term anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> we're talking about long-term freedom, I guess, and freedom to do more than than just go on holidays whenever you feel like it. So um, back to the in you know, the alternative investing as a as a concept and as in action, right? So can I can I ask you to give us a case study? Can you give us an example of, of you know, I guess you're a model um, client or, I mean, you run a sort of a, um, a mastermind group, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Look, I can definitely give you some examples. Um, one of the things that, that I need for, you know, with people that I work with is I say, okay, you, you bring half a million, say half a million dollars to the table. But if that's all you've got in the whole world, then, you know, this is the wrong place for you anyway. But let's say, yeah, let, let's just talk about a, um, a person who's got half a million dollars. Maybe they've got um, anywhere from three to seven investment properties that are just okay. Maybe they're draining them a little bit of cash flow and they've got good equity and now they're saying, well, like what what else? What could I do? Um, where alternative comes in, and this is where, you know, it, there's there's a bit of planning and sort of forecasting involved is just to really try and understand what that person's goals are. Like what do they actually want to achieve? Um for a lot of the guys that I work with who run businesses, they run great businesses, but they either don't know whether or not they can sell or <laughs> they don't want to sell. They quite like running their businesses. And they see this idea of investing as really an insurance policy or a plan B. And it and it's a fantastic plan B, but they also recognise the vulnerability of carrying these big assets that maybe if they weren't around tomorrow, would have to be sold down. And um, one of the topics that I talk a lot about is the developing of intergenerational wealth and why we're not getting wealthier and, and how to create investment family charters and things like that. But, um, you know, for for the average person that comes to me, taking a, a small percentage, and it, it could be as little as 10% or maybe up to 30 40 and it's really about going some, through someone's you know, what they need and what they want and then reverse engineering. But, you know, they could, you know, un- under- you know, education is first and foremost. They need to understand what they're investing in because that's always the number one rule. But hmm. once they get confident enough to do deals, you know, and they deploy that capital over a period of, say, 12 months, they can put themselves in a situation where they've more than doubled or sometimes even 5X'd their passive income and, the exposure as a percentage of their overall net worth is quite small. Um, and, and just to give you a 
an example maybe from someone who's starting from ground zero, if you had half half a million dollars, $500,000 to invest and you put it all in on traditional Australian property um, over a period of 10 years, you'd actually, you know, depending on the growth, but if you assumed a a 5% growth rate, you would end up in a situation where maybe you'd created, I'm going to say, 1.2 in in equity from that five million that you you brought that you invested and got leverage and so you put in twenty percent you borrowed eighty and you kind of just let it roll for ten years and so that that's quite a good income but even if you assumed a very optimistic two percent cash flow on that property and and maybe that's not realistic but you know you're not talking about a lot of income I mean not life changing income over that period of no. time. <laughs> and the other end of the spectrum, because I want to kind of describe it as a spectrum, is if you took that 500000 and put it into all-in-on alternative, and let's say you went into a bunch of deals that were going to average a 10% return, by the end of 10 years, if you'd allowed it to just reinvest every, you know, every year, you just put your money back in and you didn't need it for that 10-year block, at the end of 10 years, that would be throwing off about 122000 So... I guess what I'm saying is that there's a spectrum, right, of extremes. So if you had, and I'm going to use a a big number here, if you had $10 million worth of net assets and you had that all in on traditional property, maybe if that was earning you 2%, you might have a couple of hundred thousand dollars worth of income coming off it. And at the other end of the spectrum, if you had it all in on alternative at 10 to 12% net returns, that would be, you know, almost a million bucks, million to a, you know, so that's a huge difference. So part of the journey is just working out, well, where on that spectrum do I feel comfortable? And again, I'm, I'm really big into no judgment. It's just, it's a, it's a journey of working out what sits well with you. I'm curious though, because there's two elements of property investing and it's quite interesting how you, you talk to different camp parties and they're either the capital growth camp, which I'm definitely in the capital growth camp, um, but I recognise that, you know, towards retirement, it, it's that's all well and good. It's got to actually fund your retirement. Um, and then there's the pure yield camp and then there's sort of this continuum along the middle, I guess. But uh, And a lot of what I talk about is that the focus on capital growth depends very much on the stage of life you're at. And, you know, so we talk about, you know, um, asset accumulation phase, which is what you, you were talking about before. If you're early on, you really need to get the capital base behind you. And then you've got the sort of a, a, a consolidation phase. Um, you might ease off, take your foot off the gas in terms of your inc- your actual earning. And, and there's a, a level of um, change over from negative gear towards um, cash flow neutral and positive. And then through to retirement, right? Now, anyone who's going to buy a property in the cusp of retirement is, you know, unless they've got loads of cash, you know, <laughs> then why would you do it? Because you basically, that's not the point where it's going to suddenly generate this income for you. Um, and so what I guess the, in your sort of scenarios at two ends of the continuum, if you've got high capital growth, but you don't necessarily have um, any income coming from that, but you've got the uh, the um, alternative investing where potentially you've got much higher uh, income coming from it. But what happens to the capital? Is the capital still worth the same after 10 years? If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yes, this is really great. I I love the questions you're asking. I I was going to say, I think um, everything you say, I completely agree with. I I use a slightly different metaphor. I say there's three parts to the wealth game. The first part is you've got to build capital. Mm. There's just no uh, question. You have to do that. But sooner than people think, it's not just before retirement age. It can happen much sooner. If you look at the capital you have, and, you know, I'm a huge fan of having your cake and eating it too. What if you could keep your entire portfolio of property and just use a little bit of equity from it? And part two of the wealth game, as as I see it, is to change the trajectory of the cash flow. It, it's not about 
liquidating assets and moving them to somewhere else, which unfortunately is what happens with shares. If you want, if you want out of shares, you've got to sell them. Mm. If you're already a property investor and you've been clever enough to build a, a, a good net worth behind you of working capital, just take a small fraction of it. Part two of the game is change the trajectory of your cash flow. Part three of the game, which is as you kind of go, well, I'm ready to kind of, you know, either take a step back or work less or, you know, travel the world, whatever it is that you want to do, is about building annuities. And yes, you can build annuities if you've had the luxury of holding property for a really long time. But my experience is that you need to hold a ton of property, <laughs> ton, um, like 10 mil plus to make any kind of meaningful cash flow. And um, that's the problem that if you've done all the right things and you've built a portfolio of property here and, and now you're like, like I can't see, like, and that was the thing, the problem I had. I, I, I looked at all the property we had. We had a huge property of portfolio in um, 2009. And then I was like, if I did the math on where I was, I was at least 25 years away from developing the cash flow that I needed <laughs> and I'd pushed pretty hard <laughs> so I was like well what am I doing wrong and, and that was when I started to explore other options and um, you know it, I, I don't have to take on more risk I don't have to sell my assets I just it's it's all about just shuffling the deck chairs isn't it it's just how do I get to where I want to go while feeling safe and confident and without risking my capital growth in the future so what what was the first thing you did then oh man i, I lost my shirt a few times <laughs> <laughs> wherever there's opportunity there's always sharks yeah you know, oh you yeah know. um the real if i was going to tell you what the one ingredient is that's probably made the single biggest difference to me it's it's ratcheting up into the right networks and what i feel i've learned over the last probably 10 years is who you know and what doors they open for you matter more than you know being a clever investor like and knowing what to do it's just a different different way of thinking we sort of need a good bullshit meter as well totally. I, I i am a lot of people talk about the successes and particularly in the investment space it is very very heavily weighted towards how good am i how good am i how good am i and I, you know, particularly on the Your First Home Buyer Guide podcast, Megan and I share our failures all the time because we want people to learn from them. And we also want to demonstrate how we've learned from them. So I'm mm. really keen. You said you lost your shirt a couple of times. And obviously you've had some successes. I would love it if you would tell us a story of when you lost your shirt and a story of a success so we sort of have a bit of balance here. Will you, will you do will. that? <laughs> yeah. I'll share my, um, my best shirt loss story, but um, I don't even think people in my family know about this. <laughs> Um, hopefully they don't listen to your podcast. I won't tell them. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say 2007, I started to get really interested in development and, you know, have since done a lot of developments. But the, the very first development that I went out to do, um, I basically got swindled. So we were going to do it as a, a joint venture with someone. Um, we had lawyers check it over and we had all the right agreements put in place and, and he basically fleeced us. And we had just paid off our home and we pulled all the equity out of our home to do this first development and, you know, it stacked up and we did all the due diligence on the deal itself. Mm. But there was no accounting for the fact that the guy that we partnered with was just a crook and he just took the money and ran. And so basically we lost our house. Oh, that's pretty... Um yeah, it was Just pretty deep. full on. And how are you not protected even, though? I'm curious because, like you said, you know, you got the lawyers and you had the right deal, the yeah, right, well, the right wording, the right contacts, contracts. How 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 did it happen that that you ended up suffering in that way? Well, the, the interesting thing about contracts is they're only as useful to you and you know worthwhile if you if you pursue them. And at that point, we were told, ASIC said, small fry, can't help you, it's too small. Um, police said, it's not our issue. Lawyers said, you're going to have to spend potentially a few hundred thousand dollars to chase that money in law fees. And we just looked at it 
and on balance just said, well, we just don't have the bandwidth or capacity. And, uh, you know, from, I guess, from a yogic perspective, I was kind of like going, well, hopefully karma catches up with that person and, and deals with them. But I think the decision that my husband and I made was, you know, it was, it was awful. It was really like, you know, any loss at any time is always hard to digest. And one of the things that I feel really good about now is my capacity to, to digest. And that was a really tough one because we, we basically had to dust ourselves off and, and not so much start over because we still had a, a property portfolio behind us, but that was, it really hurt. It, it, it happened at a time where we were just, I mean, we never had great incomes and we'd, we'd done really well for the incomes that we had, but to kind of bear that loss at that point, it just, it was sort of the crossroads of we had two babies and my husband was starting his business and, you know, there was a lot of things in flux and uh, it took a while to digest that and see the learnings for what they were and actually not so much celebrate the loss but just get to a point where you know I recognize now that you know it, it every financial loss is you know you can overcome it and come back that is interesting before we get into your success story because it I imagine it is a bit of the Wild West. You talk about the inefficient and efficient markets, and I guess one thing about the more traditional way of buying and selling property or holding property is that it is um, a lot more established in terms of its structures and its contracts and its expectations and the players and, and all that sort of thing. And I know myself, I've been in situations where sometimes I have sued people and never successfully I have to say um and that's not to say I was not necessarily in the right or the wrong depending on how you judge right and wrong it's to do with exactly what you're saying is that yes it's fine to have a contract but then to enforce it is another whole level of investment not just in money but in time and energy negativity positive whatever um and so I've pulled the pin like you know I've never taken anything right to the wire because I've realized that you know, I can rant and rave all I, all I like, but I've got to get on with my life. Um, so that is rather interesting, and you've that's been a very tough lesson for you, losing your home. Um, what? Okay, and do the quality of your networks protect you from that? Um, is that enough? Oh, look, you know, there's you know, with any investing, there's no guarantees, but you know, part of being a, a really good investor, and you use the word sophisticated investor, as you um as you grow in terms of your knowledge and wisdom around investing the other thing that happens automatically is you start to cultivate investing rules mm. and i'm crystal clear on my rules and, and part of what i'm trying to teach other people about is how to build their own set of rules like what are their not negotiables and so you're quite right you know there's there's no you know if there was if there was a silver bullet and a, a sure thing everyone would be on it but what I do know now is I know how to quantify and measure my downside protection. I know how to ask the right questions. And I'm a huge advocate of asking the, the nasty pointy questions up front when you start working with someone because it's better that you, you get those off your chest early. And th there's so many things that people can do to mitigate risk, but they just don't. Well, possibly like, they don't even know that there is a risk though. That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, a, the best example of this is you go to someone who wears a nice suit and has a nice office and, and claims that they're a wealth advisor <laughs> and you think by handing your money to them that your money's safe. Mm. But I have counselled and coached so many people who've just basically added another 20 years of working life to their lives because they put their money in the wrong person's hands. So there's no guarantees, but, you know, you've got to do things like you've got to talk to past clients. You've got to look at track record. You've got to look at transparency of reporting. You've got to look at um, are they prepared to have external audits? Hmm. Um, you know, who's the watchdog? You know, these sorts of things. And so with all of the guys that I invest with now in the alternate space, open books, external auditors, independent accounting firms, legals are airtight, hmm. um, track record, I can speak to, you know, a number of raving fans who've invested with them over 20 years. Like there's there's lots of pieces of, of the puzzle. It's not, 
I, I don't ever, and that's why I tell people who come in, like they can cherry pick from a, you know, a buffet of vetted deal flow or curated deal flow. But I say you've got to layer your own investing rules over the top. Don't take my word for it. You know, to do your like, and and I help them understand how to work out what their rules need to be. But yeah, I, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're buying a piece of art as a collector or an investment property or an alternative investment. The the rules should more or less be the same. It is um, interesting you talk about the rules and also the fact that yes, there are. You, you know, you learn from someone with the experience and, and that talking to past clients is a classic too because you can talk to anybody who bought a property through, and I'll just talk about buyer's agents for a moment, through a buyer's agent in the last year or two and they'll say, oh, yeah, they're great. <laughs> and part of that greatness will be around the fact that they actually bought something because, you know, they've recognised how difficult it is to actually buy in a hot market, let alone, well, what was it a good asset? Was it the best possible asset you could buy? Um, and can I talk to you again in 10 years? And so that longevity um, is very important. And and even in a different way in when you're talking, uh, you know, when buyers are looking to buy into a brand new apartment building. You know, it's one of the problems with those sorts of um, purchases is the fact that there's no longevity to go to unless you've got transparency in terms of developer and builder and yeah, long long history, et cetera, et cetera. So you're basically applying those same those same frameworks or those same principles into this space. Can you tell now now tell us an example, I guess, of of how a successful um, investing alternative investing uh exercise went um well one of the things i love about alternative the way that i do it is i never have to go looking for deals and i never have to chase deals so what that allows me to do is let's say this quarter i have fifty thousand dollars that i've freed up somehow or i've earned or it's just if i've got fifty thousand dollars and I'm already thinking, okay, well, I'm going to deploy that in the next... I, I tend to think in quarterly cadence. So I'm always thinking this quarter, what am I going to do next quarter? And then it might just involve me having a conversation with a couple of people. But the, the most recent one I did was um, I went into a syndication and basically it's with someone and, you know, one of my rules is my trusted advisors have to have been through multiple property cycles and yeah. have been doing it in one <laughs> strategy in one niche for that period of time. But it's such like, a good point. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's but on YouTube at the moment. I've just been checking out some of these sort of property gurus, and it's like you know, you get the benefit of my seven years experience. You know, that's the one that just made me laugh the hardest. It's like what you haven't even been through an entire cycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But look, the the fifty k, the most recent one that I did was a uh, property syndicate where they bought a block of 16 townhouses and I put in my 50 and the like. there's a fairly um, long disclosure document with all the numbers and the plan and what they're going to do and how it's going to be managed. And these guys have a long track record. Um, they have the issue that if you don't get in fast enough, you miss, mm. you miss out. Like they'll put out an offer and it'll be filled in 24 hours. And I say this all the time, there's more capital out there looking for a home then there are good homes in terms of investment opportunities. Mm. But this particular deal, how it's structured is I'm going to get 8% per annum cash flow from day one and there's another 8% cash uh, capital that will come at the end of the 30 months. So it's a 30-month project. So that's a rough 16% per annum for about two and a half to three years. And so I look at that and I go, well, it's not terribly exciting i mean i don't know they're the sorts of but you you put a lot of those little deals together and suddenly you've got this you know amazing high performance portfolio and you're in deals that you with people you know like and trust and you just see the money tipping into the account and then the deal finishes and then they go oh, oh we might have one next month or do you want to do another one and so i like that idea that you know i'm not i'm not on the like that whole thing and I used to suffer this when I was younger if I had money it used to burn a hole in my pocket like I kept going oh I've got to get it parked somewhere or yeah. do something with it um, whereas now I don't need to do that so much it a couple of things that sort of come to my mind when you're talking there one is that that sort of the uh, Warren Buffett thing about always having a, a 
a lot of cash at you know on hand and i know in the most recent market doing down in sydney um uh, 2017 to 2019 at that point of time i was hugely asset heavy and capital uh, sorry cash flow was a bit tight for a period of time there and i remember thinking to myself first time ever that i've suddenly valued cash and I went, yeah. mm, that's interesting. Now I get it. And this is one of the importance for needing people to have gone through those cycles so that they can actually experience these sorts of things. But the other thing was that, so you've got to plan, but the plan doesn't mean, it, I'm presuming it's not prescriptive. I have to every quarter tip in X amount no. of dollars. No, so no, no, that's, no, the, that's like that. the challenge with the plan, isn't it? A lot of people no. say, right, well, that's it. On, on X date, I'm going to make this investment. And, and particularly with property plans, it's like the first one I'm going to, it's going to be this. And then the next one, it's going to be cash flow positive because I'm going to need the borrowing. And, and it's like, it, yeah, no. you could buy a whole bunch of crap assets doing that. So it, yep. Yeah, that patience and that ability to sit back and not spend the money or not invest the money. Um, I, is that just the wise head on, on your shoulders? You know, like... Or, <laughs> oh, well, school of hard knocks as yeah, well. Yeah, well, that's um, the thing. You can't... Te- you can't um, youth is wasted on the young, you know. <laughs> you, you, you can't put an old head on young shoulders, really, can you? I mean, how do you sort of coach someone to be able to have the patience to do that? Yeah, look... Um, I definitely recognise that, you know, my style is not a fit for everyone and, and maybe yours style is not a fit for everyone as well. It's definitely not, don't worry. <laughs> I think if, um, yeah, I think if, um, if I were to have made inroads in terms of finding better mentors and guides earlier in the piece, I probably would have been twice where I am now. I really only saw the value in the who and the you know that building of a board of advisors probably in the last 10 years mm. and that's when my results really started to become exponential um but yeah i i i see that you know a defensive game is is a great game to play at times and then sometimes a more offensive game is useful as well so there's again there's no right or wrong it's just there's opportunity cost there's preference um, and a plan, as I see it, is an organic document. It it's something that you keep playing with and evolving. I think the the real trick, though, is to put a stake in the ground about what is it you want. Mm. And that's the part that people have a lot of trouble with. Is you know, and it's not a flowery description of, well, I want to play golf twice a week, and I want to be able to have a massage on Tuesdays. It's not that kind of goals. It's like I need. X amount of income to sustain my lifestyle. I need my more. I need to be mortgage free. I need my children to be financially independent. Like they're those kinds of goals, and then so they're very concrete. And it might be like I, I always say, define financial freedom as an A plus B plus C. Like it's three things that you know, three criteria at the most. And then if you can do that, then reverse engineering is very easy. Um, and you you change. You, you know life life happens and then okay well I, I don't have that capital that I thought I'd have this quarter or I just I guess the, the quarterly cadence part is more around thinking you know about what you can do every quarter to move the needle that's probably a better way of saying it yeah okay so it it's it is an active strategy obviously because there's there's short periods of time by the sounds of it and a lot of these um these opportunities um, am I putting words in your mouth Oh, no, look, so not necessarily. So that was just an example mm. of a shorter-term deal. And for people who like to keep a little bit of capital in assets that are very liquid, mm. that, you know, those sorts of deals make sense. But you, you could go into deals that are evergreen and just keep going forever. You can go into deals where there's, a, a you know, an option to, re, you know, reinvest. Mm. You can go into deals where it's just pure cash flow. Um, there, there's so many permutations um that that's what makes it a really fun space and so part of the plan part is around going well what do you want what are the strategies that align with that then who are the deal makers or which kinds of opportunities are going to get you where you want to go and then focus in on those not you know not try and be everything to everyone and learn everything it's it's about being just in time so in, in terms of whether it's an active or passive strategy 
I'd say it's more passive. It's like armchair investing. You don't don't have to do anything. <laughs> now, are you finding that there's some deals? Is there any change in the type of deals coming across your desk? I mean, and one one thing I'm wondering whether you're seeing more in the build to rent um, space. Is there any? Are you seeing any in, of that in Australia? Mm, yeah, in Australia. Yeah, look, um, I, I know that affordable housing is a massive issue and I am hearing about governments starting to earmark capital and programs for the build to rent type stuff and more, you know, government housing and NDIS and all that good stuff. But um, my observation of those strategies and tactics is that usually someone in the middle will absorb the bulk of the profit so builders will make more money mm. um, and it doesn't necessarily make it to the end user, doesn't get passed on to the end user as a benefit. So it'll be interesting to see whether they put some, um, I don't know, speed humps in the way to make sure that the people for whom that, you know, benefit is intended actually receive it. And what about sort of co-living? Is there, have you seen, it's interesting because before COVID, I was starting to think, you know, particularly in, the, in our really expensive built-up urban hubs, I was starting to, to see more of this co-living type um, property being developed. And I think COVID may have put a bit of a dampener on, you know, with all our lockdowns and lack of being able to have, you know, the true community, communal sort of living. Is is that something that you're starting to see uh, more activity in or is it, or is it still more a traditional de- development or redevelopment? Well, it's an interesting idea, but there's no question, you know, and if you look at the data, I think that the evidence is there that COVID put the wind up a lot of people who were living in close proximity to other people. Mm. And so a big driver of growth over the last... 18 months has been people's burning desire to not only work where they want to work but get away from space. other people. Yeah. Space. Mm. yeah, so I think I read something in the last few weeks from um, one of the data houses saying that the the average capital growth in uh, houses was double that of units, mm. you know, more or less, and um, that doesn't surprise me. So you know, who knows? It's a bit like, um, will cruises come back? Um, you know, some people are going to be really comfortable going back to cruises and I'm sure they'll be very cheap. Um, but whether or not, you know, people feel comfortable doing it is, it's a touchy subject. A lot of us have short memories. (laughs) Yeah, true. Do you have a property Dumbo for us, Selena? Property Dumbo. So it's a story that we can all learn from. It might be about yourself. It might be about somebody that you know. And we're not we're not judging the people that we talk about here. What we're doing is basically looking at circumstances where often we we as fallible human beings make mistakes that we could avoid if we only knew a bit of what we don't know. Yeah, I, I'm happy. Oh, there's so many, but I'll, <laughs> I'll share one of my own just so that I don't put anyone else um, in the spotlight. I remember years ago, and this is right at the beginning of, of my investing journey, um, we engaged a, a buyer's agent who had virtually no experience who helped us into buying two houses in mining towns. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm fairly uh, conservative now, so I probably wouldn't do that ever again. But one of the houses that we bought, and I don't know, how this happened but ended up that there was a bat plague that um (laughs) that sort of descended on the town and no we couldn't rent the house out for zero because no one wanted to be in this town because of this bat plague uh so (laughs) who would have thought of that (laughs) (laughs) so you know i'm fairly cautious around investments that are in those mining towns in general now but um yeah who would have that was the dumbest thing ever. I mean, like, I probably could have done a bit of research and, and figured that out, 
the bats were starting to come into town and put two and two together, but that was a pretty dumb thing I think I did. Who would ever have imagined a bat plague, though? I mean, you know, the whole mining town thing, I mean, hindsight is a wonderful teacher. You know, we, we all look back now and go, oh, yeah, <laughs> mining towns have only got one source of income. The only reason people live there is if they live in the mine and what if they shut the mine yeah. down? And, and yeah. you know, $1,000 per week rent on a $300,000 investment, oh, why is that? You know, I mean, yeah. we're all wi- yeah. wiser now. Um, Did you get out of those two investments? Yeah, so I've over time had four properties in um, regional areas that were reliant on mining and I managed to get out of all four of them with a very healthy profit. But it was almost like as soon as we got in them, I knew something didn't feel right. So the bat plague was maybe um, (laughs) an extreme experience. Maybe that wouldn't happen very often, but I remember – one of them was in Moranbar, and I don't know if you remember, but Moranbar. I mean, we bought that property for one hundred and seventy thousand, so it wasn't a whole lot of money. Mm. Um, and we sold it for about four twenty, and the market continued to rise. And just before the the crash, they were as high as in the seven hundreds, mm. and everyone just said, "Oh, you're an idiot for selling out." But I just intuitively, as as my wisdom around investing grew, I just kept going, nah, there's this too much exposure, mm. I don't like it. Um, and so we got out and we did we did okay. Um, so I'm not that fussed about it, but I, I still think it was a dumb move. That's so interesting though because, um, well, yeah, I've looked at some of those charts, those properties that, yeah, medium price, the beginning of the boom, down around sort of 120,000, peaked seven, eight, nine in some places, you know, Moranbar, Moran, is that, I don't even know how you say it, but that was yeah, one of the poster ch- children of the places yeah, you could right. lose the most money and and then went down to, some of them went down to under what they were, less than what they were at the beginning of the boom, you know. So oh, no, it's, it's horrific. I, I've coached so many people uh, over the last decade who are still carrying property with massive negative equity in it and they don't want to take the loss. So they it's a terrible situation. They're just continuing to hold on with the hope that, you know, maybe things will improve or they just feel like they can't afford to take the loss. Um, so it's a terrible, terrible situation. Um, yeah, loss yeah. aversion is a powerful, powerful um, behavioural bias. And, you know, at the end of the day, what is it costing them? Like forget, forget the fact that if they sold out it would, you know, they've, you know, they owe more money than the properties are worth. But, you know, what else could they be doing with that borrowing capacity yeah. or just that freedom? Oh, yeah. Yep. Sunk cost fallacy, I think, isn't it? Like just yep. too far in. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, there's lots There's lots of them. I mean, if, and if anyone's interested in these bi- uh, behavioural biases, go back to our very first episode and we interviewed Simon Russell, a behavioural scientist, who went to an auction and first ever auction that he went to and came away and said, oh, my God, there's like 12 different fallacies that uh, that are in play, you know, the auction process, the actual way the auctioneer talks and all of those things. And and it's actually the genesis of, of the elephant in the room as a as a podcast was the idea of understanding, you know, what is driving us, the unconscious things that drive us. Selena, it's been a very, very interesting chat, and I really do appreciate your time and, um, and you know, your, your, I guess, explaining to us what alternative investing is and where it might fit in some people's investment journey. Um, and look, you know, we'll put some links in the show notes, but I know you've written a book on this and you've also got some various resources on your website. We'll, so we'll pop the, um, the link in the show notes. Is there sort of any lasting thing that you'd want to leave or a lasting message you'd like to leave for our listeners hmm i think um hindsight is where we figure out whether we've made good or bad decisions and i think we've talked a lot about um you know making mistakes and i think your capacity to just if you've made a mistake just pick yourself up and and just put it down to learning and and keep moving forward is, is really important and i think having compassion for yourself as an investor on the on the journey is, is really important. Everyone wants to talk tactics and show me the deals and things like that. But I think such a huge part of the wealth journey is about getting your head straight. And I, I believe your results are a function of, yes, the actions you take, but I think your thoughts and beliefs are probably 
equally as if not if not more important. So I think that's something to just keep working on and, and make sharpening the tool and noticing the blind spots. Very wise words and absolutely agree with that as well. Thank you, Selena. Pleasure. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.